Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after a year of struggling with this pandemic, science has developed a relatively good grasp of COVID-19. So how did we get this bad in Ontario? Also, after police departments all across Ontario issued statements rejecting Ford's police powers, Ontario reversed course just one day after the announcement was made. Acting Hamilton Chief of Police Ryan Diodati joins us to talk about that. And starting tomorrow, the AstraZeneca vaccine will be available to anyone age 40 and over in Ontario. Is this going to make a difference, or is there still some hesitancy because of the extremely rare blood clots? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Last week, it was uh, CNN that was uh, calling out Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, for what they considered to be his poor handling of the the vaccination program here in Canada. Uh, that made headlines. Uh, today, editorial in the Washington Post is calling on Premier Doug Ford to resign because of his mishandling of what's been going on here in the last little while. Uh, and that's that's the view from the other side of the border, of course. Uh, there's an awful lot of frustration, especially after what happened on Friday, and then they said, well, we didn't really mean that. Uh, there's a lot of questions, and I think a lot of legitimate questions, about whether or not these guys actually know what they're doing. And among those that are rather disgruntled and, and a little perplexed by this is uh, Harvey Bischoff. Harvey, of course, is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. We had a discussion with him about this last week and well he was he was beside himself just didn't quite understand what they were doing that's this is this is a little bit of what harvey had to say and what we see is there is in fact no plan and i think that defines the way they've conducted themselves since the start of this they react to to things uh, in the short term but they don't seem to look out ahead they don't follow the modeling that uh, the experts have clearly given them and on and on it goes, and I think that pretty much characterizes the way a lot of us feel. There's a great piece in McLean's that uh, that I'd like you to look at, uh, and it, it really covers, I think, a lot of the frustration they're going. Justin Ling, who's the, is the author, he's a freelance journalist for both the Globe and Mail and McLean's, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to, uh, to talk about the piece. Justin, thanks so much for the time. Uh, great piece, by the way. Glad you could be with us today. Hey, thank you. Good morning, Bill. Uh, we, we talked to Harvey Bischoff. I mean, not, just about everybody I talk to these days, I think he's getting awfully frustrated with this. And you've laid it out, I think, quite clearly in the piece uh, in McLean's here uh, that basically says that uh, these, these guys really don't seem to have an understanding of what we're dealing with uh, more than a year into this. Uh, but other jurisdictions do. And it's not as if there's no template here that we could follow, but we just seem ob- oblivious to what seems to be the best way to handle this. <sighs> I mean, yes and no. I, I, I mean, we're certainly acting as though we're oblivious. I mean, this government is still acting as though um, they have science from a year ago. But the thing is that the Ford government has a panel of experts that it itself tapped to be an independent source for advice, really an independent body that will write up the playbook on exactly what you ought to do and what needs to be done. And I don't think anyone ever anticipated that you know, that panel's advice is called the science table. I'm not sure anyone ever anticipated we'd follow their advice, follow their advice to the T. But Doug Ford has taken that advice and basically shredded it and done exactly the opposite of what they're, te- what they're telling him. You know, the advice that the science table is providing, you know, we can go back a year and criticize things that the Ford government has done. But for the, for the purpose of what we're talking about, you know, let's talk about the last month. Right? The science mm-hmm. table said to the, to the Ford government, with the, the rise in variants, you should not reopen the way you're planning to. He did it anyway. Okay. When things got bad and the modeling showed 5,000 cases a day, the science table said you need to immediately you know, roll back some of those opening plans, target workplaces where this, these outbreaks are happening, Limit the number of people in those workplaces or shut them down if you can. Um, you know, look to close schools where outbreaks are happening and get more serious about how we manage these outbreaks, especially in, in large employers. The Ford government did nothing. Now the modeling shows maybe more than you know, 20,000 cases a day. And what did the Ford government do? Promise to institute a police state. You know, the, the, the response has been diametrically opposite from all of the advice they've gotten. It is one of the members of the science table, a very preeminent epidemiologist and doctor, used the word criminal to describe what's happening. And, And frankly, it's hard to come up with a better word than that. 
Well, the, the announcement on Friday, as you say, many people have already used that characterization of a, a police state, probably shouldn't surprise us because from day one, Justin, the Ford government has blamed us for the pandemic increasing exponentially as it has. It's apparently he and his guys are doing a great job. You've heard him say that just about every day when he has these press conferences. So it's all on us. So that, that, that's the mindset they seem to be working from. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I phrase it in the piece as, you know, the moment that, you know, they stop blaming us for the, for the pandemic, we may start blaming them. And I think that's exactly what's happening. You know, there's not really any serious data to back up the idea that private gatherings, much less private gatherings outdoors, are driving the transmission of this virus. It's certainly part of the problem, but there's no indication that it has risen by any significant measure. There's no indication that scoff laws and people who are ignoring public health advice are, are doing, so with, doing so with more frequency or that um, the rise in variants is due to them. It really does seem to be the same virus we've been fighting since the start of the pandemic, right? There is always some level of transmission happening in you know, parties and, and teenagers deciding to, you know, to get together and, and break the rules. But we know that the vast majority of case counts are coming from outbreaks in workplaces and schools. Uh, you know, there, is, there, I, there is no evidence available that anyone has ever seen to show that tennis courts or golf or basketball or playgrounds or hanging out in a park or having a barbecue is responsible for any more than a negligible number of cases. Yet to see the premier come out and institute a wide-ranging police-enforced ban on individuals just trying to get by is so offensive. And it is being done to cover up the fact that his government is doing absolutely nothing on workplaces. They're sending in more inspectors. That's it. That is, the, that is the sum total of what his government is doing for workplaces. They're sending in more inspectors. Well, you know what? The provincial advice still says that workers in those workplaces can take off their masks, even if they're indoors, as long as they're two meters apart. That is anti-scientific. That ignores the vast majority of evidence we have about this virus being aerosolized and airborne. And it is dangerous to keep these places open with that backwards advice, with nothing more than an occasional inspector to show up and nod their head and say, everything looks great, boys. You've, in the piece, I think one of the most important parts is you give us some historical perspective. And it's, I mean, it's only been a little more than a year, but, but I'm glad you brought us back to those days because I, I think in those early days when we were told about the protocol we had to follow, uh, we pretty much gave them a pass and said, well, look, this is new to all of us. And if that's what they say, I guess that's what we need to do. You know, but washing everything and, and washing our hands and, you know, don't touch your face and all this sort of stuff. That was then. We know a lot more about it. At least the experts know a lot more about it these days. And, and the protocol has changed considerably from the, the way it was last March uh, to where it is now. But the government didn't seem to get that email. Oh, God, no. I mean, you know, listen, I, I don't blame even for a second governments who said you should wash your groceries, make sure you don't touch your face, and you know, wash your hands every, you know, every five minutes. I understand why that was done, because there was a time when we did not know how this virus was being transmitted. That has not we, that has not been true for almost a year. We know how this virus is transmitted. It is possible that the droplets we've heard so much about are part of the problem, but increasingly we know that this virus is transmitted and that the largest outbreaks and super spreader events happen because the virus is aerosolized. It is in the air. If you have people, you know, not wearing, you know, quality masks or working themselves up, you know, into a sweat or worse yet working without their masks on, or you know, children running around in the school gym, or whatever, and you're not exchanging and filtering the air consistently, the number of virus copies in the air multiply to a point where anyone breathing that air could very well catch the virus. That is what we know is happening increasingly. Now, but if you continue fighting the virus as though you can catch it from your groceries or it's only caught by people spitting in your mouth, well, then, you know, if, if that's still what you're thinking about, then you're not going to fight where the virus is actually being transmitted. And this, this government, either because it is arrogant or stupid, is still stuck on that idea, and it's still telling us to, to wash our hands and everything will be fine. It is unbelievable. It is unbelievable to watch this. 
It's evidenced by the reaction from uh, the announcement on Friday, and, and I know you referenced that uh, just a second ago, uh, and in the science panel that, as you say, were actually appointed by this government, uh, starting to speak out. And, and, and well, I mean, we, we know a lot of those names because we see them on TV, hear them on shows like mine here almost every day. But uh, I, I noticed that Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who's on the panel, uh, spoke out about this. Uh, Dr. Peter Uni, who's going to join us on the show a little bit later on, basically said that's not the advice we gave them. We did not say stay indoors. We did not say close tennis courts be outside that's the, the way probably the safest place to be right now as opposed to cloistered inside with you know as you say with with closed systems and everything else fresh air we found out last summer is actually good that's when the numbers went down yeah. uh, and and th so that's the medical advice apparently that they received according to those two esteemed doctors so why did they do a, a, a devout face and say yeah but we're not going to do that because this government is recklessly and arrogantly committed to the belief that they know better. They know better than the experts, the scientists, the modelers, the epidemiologists, and that fundamentally they know better than the virus. Like that is fundamentally what's happening here. This government thinks it can just do whatever it wants and that it'll work out fine. This government is more concerned about the next jobs numbers report than it is about people's lives. They rolled the dice and they lost. And now they're refusing to admit they were wrong. It is... I, I'm I'm being very blunt here when I tell you this is the worst week in governance I've ever seen in Canada. I have covered politics in this country for about a decade. I have covered every level of government, and I've covered some pretty inept operators. This is a low point. I, 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 I am a little bit at a loss for words for just how badly this government is bungling this. And I can tell you, I've spoken with a bunch of those members of the science table, a few, a few of them that you, that you mentioned. They're the ones who provided the modeling. They're the mm -hmm. ones who are showing Ontario's ICUs reaching a critical capacity in a matter of, of weeks, if not days at this point. And the Ford government doesn't care. The Ford government, like you mentioned, decided to blame us and close playgrounds and close tennis courts and close basketball courts so that it can continue letting condo construction sites, <clears throat> large warehouses like Amazon, and you know, sporting good manufacturers continue working so that when the next jobs numbers report comes out, Doug Ford gets to say, we're doing the best in the country. That, that is the equation here. And I can tell you the science table is in an incredibly difficult spot right now. Um, they're, they're, they're being used as a fig leaf, and they know that. You know, Doug Ford sat at that press conference on Friday and waved around the science table's modeling as though it backed up his position. The science table is incredibly aware that they are being used and abused by this government to give the, the veneer of science and expert advice. And I think you'll see them today come out and push back against that and really try to turn the screws on this government until they actually wake up and do their damn job. Well, I look forward to our conversation with uh, with Dr. Uni a little bit later on this morning. But I mean, evidence of, of the piece, and I think uh, probably the next phase of this is, is the, the news we got this morning that the Atlantic provinces, who, by the way, did not follow this protocol, they, they did it properly, are now saying, we can help you, Ontario, because clearly you don't have your act together. I mean, that's, that's the underlying message here. We got our act together. We're doing things pretty well down here, so we can send some expertise and some resources. And if they accept the offer, by the way, Justin, I would say for probably the first piece of advice is stop doing what you're doing because it's not working. You know what's even more telling about this is that it's not just the Atlantic provinces. Inside Ontario, there are First Nations communities that have fundamentally stopped the spread of this virus yeah. by basically doing their own thing, by you know deferring to their own experts and, and actually doing, doing their job in a way the Ontario government's not. You can point to the territories. The Atlantic provinces absolutely you know, you can point to New Zealand and Australia and Singapore and untold numbers of states where they haven't sat around blaming the government for the lack of vaccines. You know, they haven't sat around whining about the the rough lot in life. They've, you know, rolled up their sleeves, they've gotten to work, and they've successfully either beat back the virus entirely or have gotten case counts low enough that their ICUs are not at capacity. The Atlantic premiers at this point should just take over Ontario and run the damn show because Doug Ford has proved himself criminally inept at doing so. I, I 
can, you know, I, my my I'm from Nova Scotia. My my level of of FOMO and envy uh, for my Nova Scotian friends is at a, a, a very high peak at this point, because basically the entire country is is recklessly committed to some form of what Doug Ford is doing. Francois Legault continues to, um, you know, to, to to rely on his curfew, even as he lets many businesses stay open. Um, you know, Manitoba and Saskatchewan decided to reopen churches and let people congregate without their masks on. Um, it, it is incredibly frustrating to watch this complete void of good government governance in this country, um, because we know what we have to do, and if we do it, it means our economy gets to reopen earlier. If we do this properly, it means we save a lot of businesses. If we actually follow this advice, it means restaurants get to open much sooner than they're going to now. Doug Ford's reckless commitment to this absolutely insane plan is going to kill businesses. It's going to kill people. And I, I just can't believe they haven't already abandoned this and, and, and you, you know, basically crawl to the Ontario public on their knees, groveling and asking for, for forgiveness. Well, as one of the doctors uh, told us last week on the program, too, and, and it's, it's not as if uh, your point's well taken. I know we're, I'm getting a high sight here. We're just about out of time. Uh, because, the, you know, the, you're right, the, the federal vaccination program has just been abhorrent and it's terrible, and, and there's a lot of culpability there. But as one of the doctors said, you can't vaccinate your way out of this pandemic. If you don't do what you're supposed to do and have government policy, uh, you're never going to catch up with the vaccinations. It's just not going to happen. You know, we, we can't do that. I mean, you've seen the projections for how many new cases we're going to get every day, and it's frightening. And it's because it's what's the old thing about the, you know, what's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and expecting a different result. That's seems to be the, 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 the mantra at Queen's Park these days. Yeah, and let me just really briefly say, you know, I, I think there's criticism to be leveled to the federal government, but the Ontario government has known how many vaccines have been arriving for quite some time. It knew the allotment of vaccines it was getting. Yet, when it decided it was going to start vaccinating workers in hotspots, it added a crazy number of those postal codes. It, it did it without any sort of thought or targeting whatsoever. And now you're seeing a lot of those hotspot vaccination, hot vaccination clinics shut down because they've overpromised and underdelivered the number of vaccines. This government has, been, has shown itself incapable of planning even the simplest of your vaccination strategies. It's incredibly frustrating to watch. But I think you're going to see that continue. Even as vaccine, more vaccines arrive, they've done just an absolutely horrible job of targeting where those vaccines ought to go. Justin, always a pleasure. Uh, I recommend uh, the piece in McLean's Magazine to all of our listeners uh, to give some perspective on this. Thanks, as always, for the time today. Thanks for having me. Justin Ling, of course, freelance journalist for The Globe and Mail and McLean's. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a lot of mixed messaging going on, and you know, obviously, we're looking for some direction and some leadership uh, from our elected leaders. Uh, and, uh, well, a lot of eyebrows were raised, I think, on Friday when uh, the Premier made some announcements about, well, we talked about closing down things like playgrounds and things of that nature, and they've had to walk back on that. Uh, but also was the announcement made by the Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones, uh, about uh, increasing police powers. Well, that has changed. Jerry Smith has the latest. The province is rolling back, sweeping new COVID-19 police powers after a fast and furious backlash. Canadian Civil Liberties Association welcomes the reversal. After condemning the measures Premier Doug Ford announced Friday, police will only be allowed to stop people thought to be participating in an organized public event or social gathering, contrary to public health rules. Ford also says rules ordering the closure of playgrounds will be rolled back to keep the facilities open. Jerry Smith, the Canadian Press, Toronto. So just as we might be confused by this, I'm sure the folks that are uh, charged with uh, looking after our well-being on a daily basis, uh, those being uh, first responders in the Hamilton Police and London Police, uh, are trying to get some, some clarity on the direction too. And to try to clear the air just a little bit, we're pleased to welcome to the program Acting Chief Ryan Diodati of uh, Hamilton Police Services. Acting Chief, thank you so much for the time. Good to talk with you again today. Thanks for having me, Bill. How are you That's keeping it. these days? So far, so good. <laughs> Not much going on when you're working from home these days. I'm, I think I've pretty much minimized my involvement and my concern about what's going on, but not everyone else is. I mean, the numbers are probably frightening. Uh, let me ask you, just to start off our conversation about that, when you see numbers like this, uh, obviously I know that you know we're concerned about public safety, but we're also concerned about the safety of our first responders. Uh, what uh, what measures are our Hamilton Police Service doing to protect uh, their their members and the, the the people that are out there on the front lines, out on the streets? 
Uh, absolutely, Bill. Our, our officers continue to do great work uh, every day, and it's not just our frontline officers, Bill. It's our, our back of house and our support staff that are critical to police operations, our, our maintenance and facilities people, our fleet uh, personnel, our records uh, people that need to continue to do, do the work that they do to assist our front line. So we put in a number of um, uh, safety precautions in place in terms of our personal protection equipment, uh, a number of different um, protocols that we put in place, just the way that we do business uh, in terms of trying to limit the exposure of our officers with members of the public. Uh, we have controlled access at our police facilities now, again, uh, just to limit the number of people coming into our facilities and, and limiting the spread of the, uh, of the disease. Uh, but it's it's it, in some ways, I guess it's, it has to be business as usual. I mean, they, you know, the, 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 they're they're still out there. They're still doing what they need to be doing. Ride programs, I assume, are still in play, which I, I guess makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, we see statistics after statistic that indicates that alcohol consumption is up, and you want, don't want those people getting behind the wheel. So, uh, it's it's got to be very difficult to carry on and do what needs to be done here under these circumstances. Yes, we still have to provide. Uh, we still have to provide public safety, and uh, you touched on it in terms of ride lanes, um, you know, speed enforcement, that type of thing. We are continuing with that, and we will continue uh, with those uh, initiatives. We saw very early in the pandemic uh, with the stay-at-home orders, with the uh, decrease in traffic volume, uh, our roadways became um, tracks, and, and the speeds were alarming. And absolutely, in terms of impaired by drugs, uh, last year uh, we saw an increase of approximately 61% of the impaired by drug um, incidents, uh, as well as alcohol. So we will continue to enforce uh, the Highway Traffic Act and other related uh, legislative le- legislations. Let's talk a little bit about enforcement, because I think that's one of the gray areas that people don't quite understand, and which I think falls into the uh, initial announcement that the Solicitor General made about giving uh, police uh, services right across the province uh, what she called additional powers uh, to stop and ask questions of this nature. Uh, that's been rescinded now. What is the policy right now uh, when it comes uh, to enforcement of, of, of for, for instance, some of the government policies that are coming forward? I know a lot of these things are, are done at the local level. These are municipal bylaws that have been put in place a lot of the time, which means it has to be bylaw enforcement that does that. But do, do you and your, your members have any role to play in that? Uh, we do, and, I, and again, I just want to make it really clear, Bill, as, as a service, we, we remain committed to providing the highest quality of policing services, and we want to assure the Hamilton citizens that our members will not be conducting random and arbitrary vehicle and person stops to determine the, the, the person's uh, reason for being in a vehicle or even if they're you know walking down the street. Um, uh, again, I just want to make that clear. I know it was all the news on the weekend, and we did put out a statement uh, early on uh, Saturday. So with the new regulation now, it's, it's more uh, geared towards the people that are blatantly disregarding the social gathering and the large gathering rules. And we saw it recently uh, on the weekend again at City Hall in the forecourt there, where there were approximately 40 people uh, identifying uh, as, a, as a group of hugs over masks. Uh, and we worked very closely with bylaw, and uh, people were ticketed uh, for that offense. And uh, there are $750 tickets. So we take it very serious when people are blatantly disregarding a public health crisis. Um, that, that affects everyone. So there will be enforcement, again, but there will not be um, random and arbitrary stops. Uh, which, by the way, was was the law of the land anyway. As uh, as a former uh, solicitor general reminded us on the weekend, uh, uh, because of some of the protocols that were established by the previous government, uh, if if somebody feels uncomfortable about a, a, an interaction with a police officer, uh, they do have the right to say, I, I, "I'm not going to do this, and I'm going to walk away." Uh, unless the officer has just cause, of course, they might want to pursue that. But I mean, that's on the books anyway. And, and my understanding, from what I've heard anyway, is that uh, your offices have been adhering to that protocol ever since that came into effect some years ago. Uh, absolutely, it's the collection of identifying information. It came into effect January first, two thousand and seventeen, and we've been adhering to that since that time. And we we report regularly to the board and to the public in terms of the number of. Uh, COI interactions that we've had and COI just being uh, a collection of identifying information. So we've been, we've been adhering to that uh, along the way. And again, we will be looking for people that are blatantly disregarding this uh, public health, um, you know, pandemic that we're dealing with that affects everyone. 
So you must have been surprised. Uh, I, want, I don't want to drag you into the political weeds here, uh, but uh, when you heard that on Friday, because uh, as we heard from your police services and many others right across the province, uh, it kind of caught them off guard. I guess there wasn't a whole lot of consultation uh, with other police services about this. And, uh, and the, the, as you did, uh, the reaction from most police services right across the province was, was pretty swift. It is, and we don't want powers that are going to impact public trust. You know, public trust is, uh, in policing is the bedrock in which policing legitimacy is really built on. So, and without it, we really, we, we lose our authority and we lose our ability to do our job. So, it wasn't something that uh, we contemplated. And, uh, you know, strong relationships of mutual trust between, you know, police and the communities we serve, uh, it's critical in just maintaining that trust and having effective policing. So the protocol here, let's talk about the policies that are in place. Uh, if somebody sees, uh, for instance, a violation, whether it's, you know, a 45 car in somebody's driveway, or there's going to be a gathering, clearly, uh, do they call, if they feel that there's a, a public safety issue here, do they call bylaw, do they call police? What, what, you, what would you like to see those people doing? Well, you know what, Bill, we're, we're trying to make it easy for, uh, for, for community members. If they do call the police and it is more of a bylaw issue, we will, we will put that call through to bylaw. And, and the same goes for bylaw. If they receive a call uh, where they feel that it's best suited that the police respond to it, then they will put the call to us. Often we respond together. Um, often the police are there to keep the police, uh, or sorry, keep the um, peace. But uh, again, we're working very closely and uh, we have regular conversations with uh, Director Leander to just to make sure that uh, we're approaching uh, all the new rules. And as, as we know, they change almost weekly just in terms of uh, little nuances with the legislation. Uh, and, and we're, we're um, you know, applying it fairly across the board. I, I would imagine one of the takeaways from this conversation, too, is if you see something like that, uh, you know, you are encouraged by uh, some of the people that set these policies to to. Uh, to let somebody know about this, whether it's bylaw or police, but don't call 911 uh, unless it's an emergency situation, I think would probably be the best advice. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Generally speaking, these are not 911 calls. So that's just so people have an understanding as, as to what their roles and responsibilities are. Uh, have you seen, as, as you've tracked this, and it's over a year now, I guess, and as you mentioned, there are some nuances uh, in, the, in the changes in the policy from time to time, but how, how have you, as a police service, seen the public reacting to this? Are you alarmed by the number of calls, the number of interactions that you've had to do with people that are, well, in some cases, thumbing their nose at these uh, protocols and these laws? What we generally see is there's a slight uptick in calls for service when the le legislation changes. So when the introduction introduction of the recent stay-at-home order, there's usually an uptick. And then usually people will govern themselves uh, and correct themselves, and the calls will go down. Um, and the angst of people, again, with the numbers of positive cases going up in the community, um, People have COVID fatigue for sure, and people are suffering in different ways, not just physically, but emotionally. This has taken a huge emotional toll on, on many people. People have, you know, are, are out of work, they're isolated, so we have to keep that in mind as well. And, uh, you know, when our officers are responding to these situations, um, you know, enforcement is not always the answer. Uh, we want to continue to engage with our community. We want to explain to our community and educate our community because, again, the legislation has changed so many times, the, the color codes, the gray, the red, back to orange, back to gray, stay at home. So sometimes people are, are confused. So, again, enforcement is not the way out of this pandemic. Have you seen an uptick in those numbers? I mean, the, we, we've talked about this in the past, of course, uh, that police services, Hamilton Police Services, have got a special uh, relationship with uh, St. Joseph's Healthcare uh, when it comes to mental health calls and things of that nature. Uh, so there's a, a, an area of expertise and collaboration that's going on there. Uh, do you find those resources being used more often now because of some of the distress and, and, and strain that a lot of people are under these days? They are. Our, our calls with our uh, MCERT and our COAST and even our social navigator uh, programs are up. Again, with people dealing with this, uh, with this pandemic, you know, we have our homeless people here in terms of making sure that they're, um, they're getting their vaccine. And, and again, with some of this legislation, it could have, uh, it, it had potential to impact them uh, very much so if, uh, if uh, you know, the rules were in place that they could be arbitrarily stopped. Well, if they don't have a home to go to, that's going to be very difficult for them. So uh, we continue to monitor that and, and make sure that we're working with our partners at St. Joe's and with our uh, community uh, 
mobile response unit and our, our, our social navigators uh, just to provide a wraparound uh, service to these members. What about enforcement in other areas? Uh, for instance, uh, oh, I'll pick one out of here because i got a long list of things that ordinarily your offices would be looking for. Uh, outdated license plate stickers. Now, I know there was a directive a year ago that basically said to just back off because the, you know, the MOT offices aren't open that much, uh, if at all, in some jurisdictions, uh, and, and just we'll back off on the enforcement until we get our COVID numbers down. Is, is that still the policy now? Yeah, that's still the policy, and I know you know some people have just take it upon themselves. When things did open up, they did go and uh, renew their uh, their validation stickers. Uh, but that that's still in place. I, I, I think you know we're still a ways away before getting back you know back to our uh, quote normal. And uh, again, there is that uh, leeway for those uh, registrations. But that's uh, again. We want to, I think, make it clear here that uh, although you've issued the directive, uh, you did right from the get-go before the province uh, walked back on their idea about giving police extra powers, as they say, to stop and ask questions, uh, there will still be interactions if officers feel that that's necessary for whatever the reason, whether it's a, a motor vehicle situation or, or something else, obviously. I mean, they, they're still out there. I mean, uh, looking after the public safety, and, and there may, in fact, be occasions where they have to engage the public because of some of these issues. Yeah, and and again, I do want to you know repeat that and and uh, you know reiterate that we will be out there. We will be pulling cars over uh, again for traffic infa- infractions under the Highway Traffic Act, you know, trespass to property act. We we will be out there. Um, you know, the the walk back of the legislation doesn't prevent us from continuing to do what we've always done, and that's provide public safety. Uh, just an email here from uh, one of our listeners who's listening to our conversation here, uh, Acting Chief, uh, from Deborah at uh, bkelly900chml.com, by the way, the email address to get a, a note. Uh, what about the vaccination program for uh, officers and members of the police service? Is, is that an active uh, prog- program at this stage right now? And, and what's, what's the schedule for that sort of thing? That, that's a great question, and uh, thank you for asking that. We've been advocating uh, so far our frontline officers, have been able to get vaccinated. Um, but, you know, our members who are working, again, um, you know, in our records, in our fleet, uh, many of our detectives in our investigative services division uh, do not qualify right now for a vaccination. And where we're encountering problems is, is our frontline officers have contact with our detectives, our records people, mm-hmm. our communication staff. Um, so we're, we're, we're finding that uh, we're having some close contacts with our, our members that are coming in, our frontline members. So we're advocating, uh, you know, with Dr. Richardson to get the rest of our um, HPS staff vaccinated uh, to protect them because they're essential workers and they're coming to work every day. So, uh, you know, we'll continue to work with them. I know there's a shortage of uh, vaccines in Hamilton and uh, there's a number of people, a number of essential workers that require that vaccination. And I'm hoping uh, sooner than later that uh, everyone within the Hamilton Police Service will be vaccinated. Well, it only makes sense, and, and I'm glad Deborah sent the email because it because we've heard about some shortfalls in other areas too, uh, with the quote unquote frontline workers in healthcare and some of the other fields, uh, where they don't seem to understand uh, when they were establishing these protocols that, as you say, many of the people in support services are having daily interactions with those frontline people as well, uh, and you know they probably should be in, in vaccination uh, pro- programs just as much as anybody else is, and and this is obviously a shortfall that I, I'd like to think they can address. Uh, and I know, having talked to, to Paul Johnson and Dr. Richardson, of course, uh, here in Hamilton, uh, they're concerned about this as well. But uh, I'd like to think that the, they'd get some directives from the, the province, because if it's happening in Hamilton Police Service, I'm assuming it's happening in other police services as well. Well, you know what, uh, Paul Johnson and Dr. Richardson are doing a great job, and I know that they have a number of pressures and a number of, uh, you know, different segments uh, requesting the vaccinations, and they only get so many vaccinations. So, um, again, we're looking at our, our, our public health, uh, you know, officials to assist us, and I'm sure once those vaccines are available for the rest of the uh, members of the Hamilton Police Service, uh, we'll be notified. Anyway, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you for, for spending some time with us today because I know there's been a lot of confusion, uh, not at your end, but I mean, you know, trying to decipher, I guess, some of the, the stuff we're hearing from uh, from Queen's Park with some of the new provincial regulations that are going on and uh, the impact that it's having. And uh, I want to thank you and, uh, and, of course, all the people on the Hamilton Police Services for the great job that they're doing here under very difficult circumstances and, and sometimes kind of mixed messaging, and I understand that. But uh, I 
as one citizen was, was very pleased to see how quickly uh, Hamilton Police Service reacted to, to what turned out to be a, a, a mis-announcement, an improper announcement from the Solicitor General to simply say, look, that's not what we're all about. Uh, and I think that was reassuring to an awful lot of people. Uh, so again, uh, thank you so much for this uh, acting chief, uh, Ryan Diodati. Uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully we can talk in uh, better circumstances sometime soon. Hey, thanks, Bill. And, and, you know, on behalf of every member of our service, we want to extend our thanks to all the essential workers and the frontline health heroes uh, out there in Hamilton who are risking their lives every day to protect all of us. And as well, I'd be remiss if I, I, if I didn't mention how proud I am of every member of the Hamilton Police Service and how they've responded to the challenges of policing during this pandemic. So thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, stay well, and I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Hopefully we'll do that sooner than later. Thanks again. Acting Chief of Police, uh, Ryan Diodati, of course, uh, from uh, Hamilton Police Service, trying to get some clarity on what's going on. And just if, in case you've missed it, uh, they have rolled back that idea about giving police special powers. And probably because of the pushback that they got from, well, just about every police service that I heard of uh, in, in the province of Ontario, that's all of them, I seemed to weigh in on that on Saturday morning and simply said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to start stopping people on the street and ask where you're going. Uh, the only police service that didn't do that, and I got some emails on this, and I wanted to add some clarity, uh, was the Ontario Provincial Police uh, that said that they were going to enforce this. But there's a, a bit of a protocol issue there and a chain of command issue. The Ontario Police, of course, uh, they answered the Solicitor General's office, and, and there's a different situation here as opposed to being a local police service. And uh, so they obviously had to adhere to the policies, but they won't be doing that now either, apparently, since the rollback from the uh, uh, the provincial government that was announced uh, earlier in the day. So now you know. But it's not a free-for-all out there, too. They're still out there, whether it's on the highways or the roadways or whatever the case might be, and the ride programs are still impacted uh, by this as well. So keep that in mind if you're going to be out there on the streets. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the protocol and the government policy when it comes to COVID-19. As we know now, federal cabinet ministers are saying that their departments in uh, some Canadian provinces, more specifically, of course, the the provinces, uh, the uh, Maritimes, the eastern coast of uh, this country, are now working to send healthcare workers and equipment and maybe some advice to Ontario as it battles record COVID-19 numbers. Health Minister Patty Haidu says she's already spoken to Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott. To support the province by deploying rapid tests to municipalities so that they can be used more quickly and more uh, with more more speed and agility in workplaces to help bring down cases that are related to workplace infections. And uh, of course, um, she and I have spoken many, many times over the course of the pandemic and uh, will continue to do that work. Well, the overriding question, I guess, for all of us, including the, the government officials, is uh, how do we control what's happening here in Ontario? Uh, we've seen the projected numbers, the modeling, and it's uh, it's pretty frightening. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Peter Uni. Uh, Dr. Uni, of course, is the director of Ontario's Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me again. I've looked at uh, the numbers. I know you certainly have. We did some of the projections that we've seen here, and, and it's it's frightening actually to see uh, what could happen. And, and I, I understand, of course, this is, this is not you know saying this is going to happen. There are some things that we can do to try to mitigate the impact of the virus on the population right now. Uh, based on what you've seen over the last couple of days, doctor, are we on the right track here in Ontario? Not yet. I hope we will make it. Um, we need to be aware of, uh, even if we do the right thing now, like today, um, it will still take several weeks until ICU capacity you know, will uh, change a little bit. So right now, we know the projected numbers on ICU occupancy, um, is that's just all baked in. So uh, the next two weeks, what happens is clear as we as we uh, will will continue to, uh, to to go. Even if the uh, case numbers now flatten, the curves flatten, or even start to go down, ICU occupancy will go up. That's the problem. That's the challenge. It's uh, and that's the the most frightening number, I guess, of all. I mean, we've already heard some stories here in the Hamilton area, but you know, obviously, canceling uh, elective surgeries, uh, adding extra beds. Uh, we've heard stories about looking for beds in long-term care facilities and and even in, in pediatric hospitals right now. I think that probably should underscore to people just how severe the the the, the situation is here. 
Yeah, look, we, we're asking colleagues from the UK how they handled this, you know, in their darkest moments. And we tried, you know, to get ideas about how we can, you know, get more flexible, etc. It's really, really challenging right now. How do we do that best, given the resources we're having? Doctor, there are some jurisdictions, even here in Canada, though, that seem to have had more success. Uh, just a moment ago, I was talking about uh, the, the maritime provinces, uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, uh, and Newfoundland, Labrador, for that matter. Uh, how did they do uh, what they've done here? I mean, are, are they doing something we haven't done? Well, look, it's it's a different situation, but it may also be a different attitude. No, the situation is different if you're geographically more remote and don't have, you know, a, a long land border as we have, you know, um, with a hotspot south. Now we are the hotspot, basically, unfortunately for us. Um, then then um, things are just a bit different. So, so these places, of course, also were then more, much more consequential and just saw control through um, without uh, other considerations. This was about controlling the pandemic. The challenge we see now here is, you know, related on one end to delayed measures and then to measures that are not really suitable. And uh, we shouldn't forget once more, as we said already in January, you know, these new variants are 40 to 50% more transmissible. This is a lot. And the measures that worked before, you know, before we could perhaps afford not to have paid sick leave, as an example, and have people just go to work despite the fact that they're actually symptomatic or uh, were exposed because they simply can't stay home. Otherwise, they don't have any money anymore. Now we can't afford that anymore. It's impossible because this thing is 40 to 50% more transmissible. We have a wildfire and we now need to deal with it. Were you disappointed that that was not included in the Premier's announcement on Friday? Ooh, I mean, I, I just, on, on, on Friday, I, to be honest, <laughs> I felt really completely at a loss what to do. Um, you know, the, if, you, if you don't include paid sick leave that actually works, you know, the provincial paid sick leave is a failure. And if you don't include, uh, sorry, the, uh, the federal paid sick leave is a failure and you need to do something on a provincial level. We keep saying that. If you don't do that and rather, you know, close playgrounds, then it shows that you haven't understood the nature of this pandemic. And this worries me. Okay, we've heard from, well, Brampton Mayor, of course, uh, talked about this, and that's an area where there's an awful lot of warehousing going on. Patrick Brown is, was very upset about that on Friday after the provincial announcement, uh, that they don't seem to have understood this. Uh, we just had a, a discussion, uh, Doctor, with a, a gentleman who wrote an article in McLean's Magazine uh, that's being published right now that uh, talked about that. It's like, we know more about COVID-19, and we understand this variant's a lot more dangerous than the one we dealt with last year, but there are some things that we did last year that we shouldn't be doing now because we know differently. And, and you mentioned about being outdoors, for instance, and that's, I think, what caught an awful lot of people off guard. Uh, we found out last year, didn't we, Doctor, that if we do spend more time outdoors, eh, social distancing and masking, etc., the numbers actually go down. So the, it, that's why I thought a lot of people were perplexed when they said you're closing playgrounds and, and, and athletic facilities. That didn't seem to be the right protocol. Everything outdoor is much more safer than indoors. This doesn't mean that we should be unsafe. You know, I've heard of situations over the weekend where playgrounds became unsafe because parents are just complacent an mm -hmm. absolute no-go. So, you know, I'm seriously thinking, you know, the best bet would be that we have a mask mandate on playgrounds for parents and children, you know, unless they're just, you know, below the age of five or so, then perhaps a different discussion. But, but uh, you know, the, the point really is clear messaging inside is unsafe a priori, outside is safer if you stick to the rules, period. And then just, you know, really, really just, uh, just drill down and make sure that we only have facilities open that are really essential and nothing else, you know. What is, are there not, you know, luxury goods being produced somewhere in the province that actually should not be produced anymore, for example? You know, what are we doing with the, uh, the condo construction downtown Toronto? Is this essential? Really? 
Not really, no. So, you know, all of these things, this needs to happen now. And, you know, one of the silver linings that I saw is, you know, increased, uh, you know, work inspections, etc. That's one of the silver linings. And mm-hmm. the other one that I saw is, uh, you know, trying to, to, to basically get the mobility a bit better under control. We have too much mobility in this province right now. Uh, also with the border controls, that's okay. But then we need really to focus on what is, uh, what is now important. I had a conversation with one of your colleagues last week, Doctor. You basically said, "Look, uh, the vaccine is, is a concern, and, and the rollout is a concern, and the delays now, the latest one from Moderna, yes, that's that's problematic. But uh, as he told me, you can't vaccinate your way out of this pandemic. Not with the numbers and the projections right now. The, you, there's got to be a protocol and, and government policy that we all must follow. Do you agree with that?" Of course, we can't vaccinate, you know, our way out of this pandemic. That's impossible. We should stop having excuses that we don't have enough vaccine, period. We need to use the vaccines that we have as well as we can. But then to start to moan about, oh, we don't have enough vaccines, nothing changes with that. We need to work with what we have right now. Well, we didn't have a vaccine last year and the numbers did go down because we were following that protocol last spring and into summer. That that should serve as, I would think, some sort of a benchmark for us to follow, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. We just need to be street smart with the measures. It's not easy, but if we leverage outside space as well as we can, and if we start to have clear messaging on outside space and really just make sure that people understand inside is not safe. I was shocked to see, you know, my co- my uh, colleague, Kali uh, Barrett, actually got an, got, uh, an email from uh, from a listener uh, or a viewer uh, indicating that, you know, our province's website still indicates that, you know, if you're two meters apart uh, in a workplace, it's okay not to wear a mask. That's an absolute no-go. Everybody needs to wear a mask on a workplace if they need to be inside with other people who don't belong to their household. So all of this needs to be addressed right now, means today. Doctor, that seems to be one of the areas of, uh, well, conflict, I guess, in some people's minds. As you say, the mixed messaging uh, that we're getting from governments from time to time in situations like this. But is is it agreed upon right now that, that one of the major areas, if not the most uh, egregious uh, possible problem here, is in the workplace? It's it's working close together in indoor facilities like this. Uh, and, you know, we use, like, the postal depots and, and certainly the factories and warehousing uh, as prime examples. That seems to be where the largest outbreaks occur. Yeah, you look when we when we look at what happened in the past, it was always the same. It's it's he repeating itself again and again. It just gets more pronounced now. And this is that we have all these neighborhoods, you know, remember, we talked about that before 74 neighborhoods in the province, you know, 20% of neighborhoods contributing 50% of the cases, guess who is living there, essential workers, guess where they work in warehouses, factories, etc, etc. Guess who is on the ICUs now what my colleagues tell me, Uh, that's basically essential workers and their families, you know, essential workers bring this home, and then they live in precarious living situations. And of course, you know, we have many situations that I hear of where entire families get get infected. That's the challenge we're facing. And that's what we need to talk about right now. It's just not good enough to, to complain about that the, uh, that the patios are packed. That's not the problem. Of course, I need people now just to, you know, to do the right thing. We all need to do the right thing now. But the point is we need to drill down to what is really the issue here and we can fix that. Look at Switzerland. Switzerland does many things wrong right now, and Mm -hmm. still they struggle less. Guess why? It's a no-brainer, because they have enough social security that people stay home when they need to. It's as simple as that. Not rocket science. Everybody can do that. Just follow the rules, open your eyes, and do the right thing. Well, the example, I guess, of the United States would, would underscore what you're saying, too, wouldn't it, Doctor? I mean, their vaccination program seems to be going along very well, exceeding all expectations, yet their numbers are skyrocketing, too. There's still too many new cases. So vaccines alone are not the, pro- the, the solution here. And of course not. You know, again, we need to stop political considerations and we need to stop wishful thinking. Everybody needs to do the right thing. And this includes every one of our elected decision makers. They have a responsibility for the people. They were elected by the people. I don't care who elected them. They need to do the right thing now. As we talk to 
people like yourself, Doctor, and as, as I mentioned, a number of your colleagues, of course, over the last number of months, uh, one of the things that I find concerning, and I know a lot of our listeners do as I get feedback from them, is we hear expert advice from people like yourself or Dr. Bogash and, and so many others that you've referenced here. But that's not the message we're getting from our elected officials. There seems to be a disconnect because uh, I know they're talking to you too, uh, and I, 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 you know, what you're telling telling us, I'm sure, is what you tell them. But it, it seems to get changed in some way. Uh, they, they they don't seem to get the whole message here. Do you find that frustrating that the advice that you're giving them isn't really the advice that that they're giving to us? Yeah, look, we seem to have a broken telephone problem. We were really critical, you know, with ourselves. I asked myself, could I find any clear, um, you know, Stanley Brown is the one who is, you know, uh, in cabinet weekly. And uh, that's great that he actually is there, you know, and can discuss these things. He is very self-critical and was asking himself. I really think this broken telephone problem is there, but it's not a problem of the sender. It's a problem of the receiver. So they're not getting the message, or they're not understanding the message, or they're just simply ignoring the message in situations like that. And by the way, I agree with your assessment of Dr. Brown. He's very candid, and, and uh, he doesn't candy coat it, does he? Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I think yeah, we really try to be as clear as possible. I, I don't understand where the problem is. This is just common sense and a little bit of understanding of the epidemiology of the disease. That's all you need now. But when you have this science table, of which you're, you're, of course, a director, and, and some of the other colleagues we've talked to on there, uh, you're, you guys are all singing from the same song sheet. We're getting that advice from you. Uh, do you feel as if maybe you, you you want to skip that political step and simply talk to the people themselves and, and, and put out your own information about this? I mean, you're doing it on programs like this, and that's wonderful, too. But uh, you know as well as I do that an awful lot of people out there will juxtapose that against what the government's saying and say, well, wait a second here, who's right? No, look, this is not about being right or wrong. It's about doing the right thing. And the right thing is what controls this pandemic. And you only can control this pandemic if you follow now what we what we understood and learned during the last 12 to 14 months. It's very simple as that. If you think that you can ignore 50% on what is relevant and you can still get it under control, which is terribly wrong, you know? And we just need to change things. Now, what we what we need to do, we need to keep talking. And I really hope, you know, conversations are about, about, you know, talking and listening. We try to listen as good as we can as well. And I understand it's challenging for many politicians in the world now, right now, many struggle. But, you know, right now, we can't just have political considerations just dominate what needs to be done. It's very clear what needs to be done. We need to have this, this uh, you know, discussions about how and why and what happened, etc. later. That's not the time for it. Right now, there's still time to do the right thing. Every day counts and we just need to stop now, just move forward and just stand together and do the right thing. Doctor, I want to thank you for the time today, and I want to thank you also, you and, and your colleagues, for the great work and the consistent message that you are giving us. And uh, here's hoping that, uh, as you say, the elected officials, I know they're hearing you, but maybe they can start listening, and, and that, that might change some of these directives too. Uh, stay well, and uh, thanks again for the time today, Doctor. You too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Peter Uni, of course, who is the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the U of T, uh, obviously very frustrated, as a number of his colleagues are right now, because what they're telling our elected officials who should be done is not the message that we're getting from those elected officials. So you got to wonder who else has their ear and uh, how much influence they have over some of these decisions. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.